Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Boulos, and you are listening to the Bible as Literature podcast. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 342 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have been emphasizing the subtlety of the statement, the first will be last and the last will be first. People get confused in the New Testament when dealing with power and hierarchy. When Paul says, I am the chief among sinners, everyone gets excited as though Paul is being humble. What they don't realize is that if Paul is the chief sinner, what does that make you? If Paul is the slave of Jesus Christ, and you happen to be the head of household, a patrician, what does that mean for you? And when Jesus tells Peter, guess what? You get to sit on a throne, and I'm sitting on the second most important throne at the right hand of my father, and look what I get. We have to understand Scripture in these terms. It's not so much as theologians often say that it's about weakness and inversion of hierarchy. It's about the fact that you are under someone who is already at the bottom of the hierarchy. You know, I hear so many people try to boil down the story of the gospel and talking about how Jesus just saved everybody. But you have to read the actual story to understand how he saved people and what salvation even means. You can't simply state these things without actually explaining what they mean. And unfortunately, we run into the inconvenient truth that it's not self-explanatory in a pamphlet or in Cliff's notes. You actually have to read the entire story because There's something very specific about what it means for the last to be first and the first to be last. The first one is when Peter said, well, look, we gave up everything. Aren't we going to get something a little extra? And Jesus says, oh, you'll get extra, but the first will be last and the last will be first. And then later on, when he has the parable of the vineyard, the people who came first get to be the last to be paid and are all upset because of what they see that the latecomers got to be paid and they felt it was unfair. The first to be last means that you gave up everything. You gave up more than everyone else 
but you're going to be the last ones to get a reward and there might not be very much for you. You don't know how much you're going to get. The problem is you think that, well, if the first is going to be last and the last is going to be first, well, then it must be better to be last. So I'm happy I can be last. No, 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 no. Last is not good in a lot of ways. And that's why Jesus says you're last. This is precisely what you said, Father. He's going to go in now and he's going to talk about what the absolute first, the only begotten, the one that sits on the right hand of God the Father, what does it mean for him to be last? And I don't think it's the reward that Peter was hoping for when he asked the question. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way, he said to them, Here, I want to point out an important connection to the discussion with Peter about the reward that he will receive for having obeyed the Torah, which was his duty from the beginning. Matthew specifically mentions the Twelve, which calls to mind the discussion about the Twelve Thrones. So we see here in verse 17 that Jesus is going to bring that discussion full circle and say explicitly what it means to sit on the throne And of course, we'll learn in next week's episode that the disciples don't get the message, but let's save that for later, Dr. Benton. Yeah, there are many treats ahead of us. I can't help but think, is the author of Matthew here already one step ahead of the reader thinking, oh, if they're going to Jerusalem, now they're going to get the good thing. Now Jerusalem is going to be retaken. Jerusalem is going to be captured. And Jesus takes the twelve as well as the reader, aside to tell them what it actually means to go to Jerusalem. We know exactly what it means because there was a big brouhaha about the United States deciding to move their embassy to Jerusalem. Why was this such a big deal? And why was this considered triumphant for these earthly powers? I mean, an embassy can sit anywhere at once, right? It's not even local land. The embassy is the land of the country who is being represented there. So why does it matter where it sits? But we have an assumption about what it means to go to Jerusalem, that going to Jerusalem is owning it, conquering it, and controlling the land, just like David did. Jesus is going to take the excited listener and his excited 12 and, in a moment, explain what happens when you go to Jerusalem and you want to do the will of his Father. And you want to do the will of his father. It's not the conquering king. It is not the glorious king that the human being automatically thinks about. This is a turning on its head of glory and of power that the reader should appropriately be shocked by. The way that scripture fights imperialism, and it does fight imperialism. Come on. If you haven't figured that out, you're not listening. I know it's more exciting for Westerners who are caught up with their own individualism to talk about what Scripture means to them and their personal life. But there are weightier matters at stake here. Caesar had his boot on the neck of the planet. As it is today, it was in late antiquity. Most people, the majority view, was that the way to combat Caesar was to wage war against him. Just like today on Facebook, 
people have concluded that the best way to advance your agenda is to smash people on the other side of the discussion. But that's not what Scripture does. Scripture does fight. It is anti-imperialism. It is anti-ideology. It is anti-idolatry. It is anti-the ego of the addressee. And in the same way it attacks our hubris through its own self-critique, it attacks the power of Caesar through the crucifixion. Remember, if Paul is the chief among sinners, that means you're a sinner of lesser rank than Paul. If Paul is the slave of Jesus Christ, even if you're a Roman patrician, that means that you are under the boot of a slave of someone else. And if the Son of God is crucified, that means that Caesar, who claims to be the Son of God, is himself emasculated. This is the power of the self-critique. And the disciples are still trying to build themselves up. The way that human beings function, as you said, Father, is they go and they smash the king, they defeat the king, they wage war against the king. But what comes after? They put their own king in its place. And then what happens after that? The other side wages war against that king to defeat that king, puts their own king in the place. Every group of people wants to put an image of themselves on that throne to rule because you can't trust the other side. You can only trust one of ours. The way that Scripture functions, as you said, Father, it's really hard to miss that the entirety of Scripture is anti-imperial. The way it is anti-imperial maybe is the opposite, which it is pro-imperial, anti-imperial, meaning there's one kingdom, one kingdom that belongs to God, the kingdom of heaven, that is always outside of both your king and their king. That king wages war against your king and their king to establish that king on the throne. And that king is not ruled by petty identity, but is ruled by Torah. Since that king establishes Torah on that throne, then everyone is bound to it. And this is vexing to any listener. You want your king on the throne, they want their king on the throne. The reason people smash other people's ideas on Facebook is so that their ideas can stand on top and their ideas can reign. Everyone wants to put an image of themselves on that throne. The way that the kingdom of heaven functions, nobody gets an image of themselves on the throne. Because as we're going to see, there is no one innocent in this anti-imperial tract, this anti-imperial story this anti-imperial argument that seeks to smash the ruler of both the Jews and the ruler of the Gentiles in order that God might place his own representative on that throne. In the past, we've said on this program that you and I, Richard, are Pharisees. I think we were overreaching. We're not important enough to be called Pharisees. The Pharisees wrote the story and made themselves the arch-villains, we're not in the story. This is how you have to hear the text. This is what you have to hear when the crucifixion of Jesus is preached to you. It's a systematic demotion. It's not even a demotion of you. It's a demotion of the human authorities in which you glory, which are your stand-in for Caesar as your son of God. Behold, 
We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. So this is part A of a formula that is typical of the New Testament that reflects the teaching of St. Paul in Galatians and Romans and elsewhere, that God shows no partiality. He looks to condemn all relevant parties across the board. It's the teaching of Isaiah, where everyone is laid low before the authority of God, who flattens even the hills. So this component of the preaching of the crucifixion and the resurrection, this stage, this clause, this step in the argument, is the first step toward what Paul does in his letter to the Romans. He doesn't just hit the Jews, he hits the Gentiles also. And here, interestingly, he's beginning with the chief priests and the scribes, which he does elsewhere, but in this specific setting, it fits nicely the teaching of this chapter that the first will be last. Yes, the first will be last, and the scribes who condemn him, who judge him, katakrinosin, they're the ones who have put themselves on the throne to judge Jesus. Anyone who has a broader view of history sees, okay, so the Democrats pick a running mate, and they've got the advantage, and then the Republicans attack that running mate, and then that running mate is brought down, and then the Democrats have to come back with something to attack the way that the Republicans are carrying out the election, and then the Republicans have to bring back something about how the Democrats have not dealt with immigration, and it goes back and forth, and it's endless. Anyone with a view of history knows that not only is it endless now, it is and ever shall be endless. So you have to come up with this third option, which is neither a Democrat nor Republican, neither a Jew nor a Gentile. They're the ones who are going to have to set things right. And here it's the son of man who's going to be treated this way. This came up when Jesus and Peter were speaking because Jesus was calling himself the son of man. Who do the people say that I am? And then Peter is the one who says he's the son of God. I can see why Jesus was used this term, because people are going to misunderstand him. Oh, you're the son of God. You're the son of our God. Ah, okay, you're in our image. Yes, we want you on that throne for us, because they want to put someone on that throne for them. And he says, no, I'm before Gentile. I'm before Jew. I am simply a son of man, and I am the third option. Here it's important to pay close attention to this question of God showing no partiality and at the same time the first being last. Because in judging the world, everyone before God is laid low, both Jew and Gentile. But insofar as in this story, the chief priests and the scribes have already received Torah, they received it first, and even worse— they were appointed as shepherds for the people, they will be judged more harshly. Remember, the first will be last. There is a pressure that is placed on the ones who have been given more, 
who have more or who have been assigned any kind of station that has power or authority. So everyone is judged. Everyone is demoted. But the higher you are on the totem pole, the greater your demotion. This is how you have to hear the teaching of the New Testament that tears you down and will condemn you to death along with Jesus Christ and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So now we see how the formula is complete, Richard, because just as the rulers of Israel were condemned, so you have already addressed the question of the first among God's people, Matthew now turns his sights on the Gentile community. Everybody is under judgment. Guilt is passed around to every nation and every identity. Everyone has a hand in this because everybody has a hand in wanting to put their own person up there. People, naturally, they want to skip the ugly parts here, the mocking and the scourging and the crucifying and whatnot, and move to the last one. Oh, and the third day, he will rise again. He will be lifted up. All this great imagery of what's going to happen. But this is falling on the heels of the two stories about the last being first and the first being last. If you get more, you're going to have to put more in. This leaves no space for the lazy Christian who wants to sit in their comfortable suburban house in the morning and read their Bible with a cup of tea and feel that they've done something for the kingdom of heaven. This is not what he's talking about when the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Oh, I'm just a humble dad sitting in my study, smoking my pipe, reading my Bible. That's not what he's talking about when he's talking about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He's talking about labor. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about being mishandled and humiliated and betrayed. I mean, he uses betrayal twice in two verses. He's betrayed and handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. He's handed over twice. He is getting manhandled. You aren't going to be among the first unless you're going to get manhandled. This is hand-to-hand combat. You're going to get dirty in this. If you're not getting dirty, then you have no fruit worthy of repentance, as John said at the beginning of this book. You cannot be someone who is a citizen of this kingdom unless you're willing to put it all on the line for the sake of that citizenship. And putting it all on the line for the sake of that citizenship is not getting your guy on the throne. It's not getting your land established for your people to rule. I hear too many Christians who are wrapped up about us controlling the land. Why do they want to control the land? Because they want to keep it safe from those other people. You're not going to keep it safe from those other people. Because according to the prophets, those people were sent by God to toss you off your throne because ultimately God is going to sit on that throne. And while you're occupying that throne, there's no space for God, and God is going to have to topple you. This is the combat you're going to have to face. The combat is not against the powers of this world, but against God fighting you and your ego. So put it aside. Look and see what you 
and your people and your identity did to Jesus and realize that the one who receives your violence is the one who's going to be raised up, not you who sit off to the side and experience no violence and think that somehow you're worthy of anything. This is why contemporary Christians have a crisis when they see a Christian kiss the hand of their teacher or even prostrate themselves in a liturgical setting before their teacher, their priest, their bishop, or a teacher in the church. This frustrates people because they don't get the point about the first being last. They don't realize that they're playing the part of Peter when they cringe when someone kisses another's hand because you see that act of submission and it threatens your power. Remember that the value of the one who has been given authority has nothing to do with them. They are a placeholder for the authority of the gospel, but they make that authority a reality for you. There is no such thing as a platonic relationship. You can't submit an abstraction. There have to be other people around you who actualize the commandment for you. So that's the trick, that this critique of your ego isn't a cerebral activity. It has to be an activity that takes flesh. That's why everything in Scripture boils down to how you relate to your neighbor. Besides which, Paul was no dummy, and neither was Matthew. We've said this many times, that nothing works in human society without an organizing principle. That organizing principle in late antiquity happened to be Caesar, whom Paul replaces with Jesus Christ, which then demotes all of the authority positions in the Roman Empire. That is how it works, friends. And don't get excited that on the third day he will be raised up. Nobody is excited about that when they're standing in front of the executioner. If you get too excited about the resurrection when you yourself have not yet been martyred, you're going to end up being one of these people on Facebook smashing people who disagree with you because that's how it works. It's called realized eschatology. That is why the kingdom is in the eschaton, because if it were here now, you'd want to smash other countries. You need look no further than the reservation in your backyard, where the unseen oppressed to this day in the United States, the Native Americans, are paying the price for our realized eschatology and our manifest destiny. So if you're serious about Jesus Christ, please be serious about Jesus Christ and hear the news of the coming judgment. To him alone be the glory. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. As Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.